In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm here with political insider columnist Patricia Murphy. Patricia, thank you for joining us because I know you had a late night last night. I was up past nine o'clock, Greg, and I'm, I have not recovered yet. And I was up till two, <laughs> and I have sort of recovered. So we, we, we both have very different lifestyles. <laughs> But it was a great night. Before we start, we, we, we get to honor the chief, Jim Galloway, um, Patricia's predecessor as the political insider at the AJC. He was inducted into the Atlanta Press Club Hall of Fame, and it was just a terrific celebration. It was fantastic. Uh, Jim Galloway, you know, you just literally a legend in our midst. I love hearing him, seeing him, um, listening to his stories, and, and he could make anything interesting. And last night, the editor of the AJC read, did a dramatic reading of one of Jim's um, emails, uh, and it was a story about 10 goats and a sheep named goat, and it was amazing. It sounds like a kid's storybook title, right? Like, Jim <laughs> yes. should have a second career making writing kids' <laughs> yes. books, the, the tale of the 10 goats and the sheep named goat. I love it. Um, well, we have plenty that he likes to talk about, too, because even though we are 51 weeks away from the 2022 election, Governor Kemp's allies are making it clear whose side they're on. I want to say how very proud I am to stand with Governor Brian Kemp today and every day. He has been an outstanding leader for Georgia, the exact leader that we needed during very challenging times. Never been a doubt that Governor Kemp backs those serving in uniform, not only in police uniform, but also our, our military folks. That is what a leader does. And I'm very proud to stand with Governor Kemp. That was Attorney General Chris Carr and Insurance Commissioner John King, because Governor Kemp is trying to cut off any challenge before it can get started. I'm not worried about what other people are doing in politics. I can only control what I've been doing. I have been in this fight with these people standing behind me. My family has been in the fight with them. We are going to stay in the fight. And the biggest Republican primary threat he faces is still from former Senator David Perdue. So if anybody else wants to get in the fight, you would have to simply ask them why. Why? That's the big question that Governor Kemp asked Patricia. And look, he is very cognizant. They're not dismissing any sort of talk that David Perdue could run in this race. They know it's a a real and and present danger to his reelection hopes. And he's doing everything he can to try to ward off that threat and try to consolidate support. Because Patricia, you wrote this could be total war within the Republican Party if David Perdue does decide to launch this primary challenge. 
That's exactly right. And it really felt like this week um, that Governor Kemp was launching the first salvo in that war. And the war within the GOP that I was writing about was this incredible anxiety among Republicans who are not affiliated um, with either campaign of, of Governor Kemp or a potential Purdue campaign. Uh, they don't want to have to choose between these two guys. They don't want to have to come out and publicly say, I'm, yes, I'm for uh, David Purdue. <laughs> I, uh, yes, I'm for uh, Brian Kemp. Um, it's, it just puts them in a terrible position. Um, they really would rather just have a single candidate to get behind. And they want a single candidate who's going to win. Um, and if you have two just big time heavyweights duking it out ahead of a general election against whoever it's going to be. It's going to be a very strong Democrat. Um, they just don't want to go down this road. And uh, Governor Kemp has now started to deploy these very high profile endorsements, um, along with, he pointed out, of course, 107 sheriffs have endorsed him um, to say, if people are choosing, these are the people choosing for me. I think he's going to roll these out early and often and really show that he's got the critical mass of GOP support um, if anybody like a David Perdue really does want to challenge him. Yeah, and, and why do they want to unite? Of course, because Stacey Abrams is, is looming. You know, the, she has not entered the race yet. Um, there's no, she's not 100% guaranteed to enter that race, of course, but, but everyone in, in the Georgia political world expects her to do so, and there's not a single Democratic challenger who's announced yet, or even said that they're, they're going to run if, if she doesn't. Um, and, you know, she would, she would be a fundraising juggernaut. She has almost universal name recognition in the state of Georgia. She has a national profile. And, and of course, Republicans are, are acknowledging that after her near miss in 2018, she would be a very formidable candidate for, for, for Governor Kemp or whoever the Republican is who emerges. So the, the, the GOP wants a sense of unity that they just can't have, even if David Perdue doesn't run, because you still have former President Trump out there um, saying that uh, he, he'll, he'll fight a, a, a Kemp re-election, that he's going to campaign against Brian Kemp. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you think about it in sports terms, you know, the same football team does not want to have to play the Super Bowl twice in one day. You want to have just one gigantic task to focus on. And Stacey Abrams has created this monstrous turnout machine for the Democrats. And we saw what that turnout machine did produced um, or really helped produce those wins in 2020 for the Democrats, which I think even Democrats didn't think was going to happen. So she has created this unbelievable juggernaut um, heading into 2022. It's just a much stronger ground game than was in existence in 2018 the last time she ran. There are also a number of new residents in Georgia, lots and lots of new, younger, more diverse voters. And so I think Republicans are worried generically about that situation. You add a really tough primary challenge on top of it, along with all of the drama and um, hurt feelings and rivalries and uh, grudges that would go along with that. And you just don't want to go down that road. But David Perdue is dangling this out there anyway. And Patricia, uh, amid all this, we did have the news from the cab chief executive, Michael Thurman, that he was at least, you know, willing to raise his hand. He's not saying he'll run if Stacey Abrams doesn't, but he's saying he's willing to raise his hand just in case. Yeah, that's exactly right. I talked to Michael Thurmond um, 
at the end of last week, he had been on a radio show uh, with me on Bill Nugget's radio show and was just asked directly, would you run if Stacey Abrams doesn't run? And he said, well, you know, it wasn't a no for sure. So I called him and he honestly does not sound like a reluctant warrior. I think he has an entire sort of campaign philosophy about how Democrats can win statewide going forward. He um, obviously this is a guy who loves to run in campaigns. He's yeah. uh, been elected at just about every level, including statewide three times. Um, so I think he he would be very interested. I'm sure there are other Democrats who would be very interested. But the time is getting late, and I think we are expecting um, Stacey Abrams to come out with an announcement soon. And again, I think we all expect her to run. But as it gets closer and closer um, to the end of the year and we get closer and closer to being um, less than a year out from election day, you know, Democrats are starting to really look for some certainty on that on that side of the of the ballot. Yeah, I think I think if you gave um, CEO Thurman a, a, a truth serum, he would probably say she, he thinks that she would run, too. But, you know, he's got a he's got a long record. He's been a statewide labor commissioner. He, he was the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate back in 2010. Uh, and now is head of the Democrats' most important county, DeKalb County. So uh, a, a great resume, but also very different political um, ideology uh, than or political approach than Stacey Abrams. He is one, one of the Democrats who believes that um, aiming towards the middle, you know, aiming towards um, those those sort of uh, reluctant suburban voters, those swing voters, um, is still the ticket for, for, for Democrats, where, of course, Stacey Abrams says, hey, I, I don't mind if they, they come on over, but if we go for our authentic core, we'll get those voters anyway. And that plays right into our next topic, which is the 2022 race for the U.S. Senate, because I, I was in Fayetteville this week with Senator Raphael Warnock, who is part of a full court press by Georgia Democrats to, to rally support for President Biden's uh, economic relief legislation, social safety net legislation, the infrastructure package that will be signed in a few days. I asked the senator, though, if he thought Democrats had a messaging problem. I think um, we need to do a better job of helping families to understand what's in these bills and, and the work uh, that's getting done. Too often politicians are talking to one another instead of the talking to the people that they represent. But there's great stuff in these bills. And when you and when you poll American people on what we're trying to do, it's all very popular. And you heard kids in the background because we were at a, a child care center down in Fayetteville and he was about to read um, to a group of about a dozen kids. But but Patricia, this has been an issue that, that senators have faced because people are focused on the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan bill that, that passed that's about a trillion dollars. There are, I hear from readers all the time, they're not quite sure what's in the social safety net bill that, that will be next on the debate docket. And folks are already, in some cases, forgetting what happened with the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package that, that passed earlier this year. That's exactly right. They are having an incredibly difficult time getting credit for all that they've done with this legislation because they've done a horrible job messaging on this legislation. And I think even as writers, we know that specificity uh, really leads to uni universality. Like the more specific you can be about certain pieces of a story, the better people can really connect with it and understand it. And if you take, for example, the Build Back Better bill, 
Um, does anyone know what's in that thing? I'm not really sure. Even Warnock, when he was out in the state this week, was talking about a couple of different things at once. He was talking mm -hmm. about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which just passed, but also the Build Back Better bill. And then we're also still talking about all of the all of the money that is on its way to Georgia from that $1.9 trillion package. I feel like if they just had done like two single pieces, if they did one bill to expand Medicaid, that would have been humongous news. That's stuffed in there into that uh, Build Back Better bill. Yeah. Um, but it's getting lost in the conversation. If we had had a single bill, or if they had had a single bill about creating uh, paid family leave or childcare, paid childcare, or universal pre-K, um, any one of those individual pieces, I think would be considered sort of uh, a societal shift, like a major change for this country. But when they jam it all in together, um, I've compared it to packing an elephant in a carry-on. It, it is just <laughs> way too much. It's just too much. No one can understand it. And if people can't understand it and you're not getting credit for it, it's almost like, why are you doing it? And can you really administrate this properly once you pass it? And, and that underscores the challenge they face because um, Democrats feel like they've got this one shot when they control the major branches of government. They control the White House and, and, and both chambers in Congress, not by much, right? So they, they, you know, they only have one shot, they feel, at a massive package like this, like the social safety net, which they have to use um, through reconciliation because Republicans will filibuster in the Senate because there's, you know, they take 60 votes um, and they don't have that. They only have 50. And they have to keep the moderate branch in line. They've got to keep the progressives in line. We saw with even with the infrastructure package passing the House, it, it took a, a 13 Republican votes to cross party lines to really keep, make sure that package passed with a little breathing room uh, to spare. So Democrats are playing with, with they don't have <laughs> they don't have much breathing room here uh, whatsoever, and, and and that's why they're shoving all this uh, in this this entire elephant into that pack that you mentioned because. They just don't have the ability if they want to go ambitious. And I think, um, and we've heard Democrats talk about sort of lamenting um, the fact that in, in President Obama's first two years, when they had the same scenario, when they had advantages in the House and Senate in the White House, um, that they felt like they didn't go all out for some of the progressive causes that they wanted to. And this social safety net bill um, goes in that direction. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was uh, covering the Hill when the Obama administration was uh, working to get the Affordable Care Act through. Um, they had 60 votes in the Senate. They had a huge majority in the House for Democrats. Um, and even that was an incredibly heavy lift, and it took months and months longer than Democrats expected it to. But once they got that across the finish line, it really felt like they had spent all of their political capital on this one big lift. And that left groups like immigration groups who were expecting to get all of their, um, all of their priorities uh, taken care of immigration really never even got addressed in the Obama administration. Climate change activists who were expecting a big climate change bill to come out, the Senate just did not have the votes after that to get another big package through. So I think they feel like there is a single plane leaving town before the hurricane comes and they're getting everything on that plane humanly possible. Um, to me, it sort of telegraphs a concern that they are going to lose their majorities in the House and Senate, um, which are already so narrow. Um, 
and they're working to just uh, do whatever they can in the meantime. And uh, whatever they can has ended up being just a tremendous amount of legislation that that ends up just being hard to really uh, follow and track and understand and get credit for in the end. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the hurricane hitting Georgia politics. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. I'm here with political insider Patricia Murphy. And now we'll talk about the redistricting hurricane that is hitting Georgia politics because a lot of focus, Patricia, has been on the congressional maps and the, and the state legislative maps um, that are really drawn. Um, I wouldn't say they're not aggressive, but they're not as aggressive as I think many thought. Um, they preserve Republican majorities, but in the House, they're drawn to lose about half a dozen Republican seats in the Senate, uh, there could be a net gain of one or two seats um, for either party, depending on how the final lines are drawn. But I think a lot of the controversy has come with Gwinnett County. That's stealing the headlines because, Patricia, Republicans are trying to redraw the, the county commission lines to neutralize some of the epic Democratic gains in recent months. Well, that's exactly right. And if you look at a single um, bill or district, uh, how much, how many people would any of these things affect? If you look at some of these uh, districts, we're talking about about 190,000 people. Um, if you look at Gwinnett County, that is a million people. And there have been multiple, multiple public hearings about these lines that are being redrawn in the State House and Senate. Um, lots of public input. I think a lot of um, expectation that the Republicans might try and jam the Democrats, which they really don't appear to have done as in a way that would have been um, as uh, alarming to Democrats as it could have been. So that has been a little bit of, um, that's fallen below people's expectations in terms of fireworks. And then this Gwinnett County restructuring has come absolutely out of nowhere um, from uh, two Republicans, one in the House, one in the Senate. Um, and it would really just overhaul the way that Democratic uh, uh, elected officials are um, are put into office in Gwinnett. It would make the school board nonpartisan elections instead of partisan. And it would expand the county commission from five seats to nine. Um, now, the challenge uh, for these Republican legislators as they're in Gwinnett trying to get reelected mm -hmm. is that there's just a whole lot more Democrats in that county. These boards reflect that. And so that has the Democrats in the county really crying foul and saying this has nothing to do with good governance and it has everything to do with the fact that you guys keep losing elections. And um, 
I think one thing that really has set off red flags for people even in Gwinnett is that these legislators didn't talk to the people on the boards, didn't talk to even other Republicans in the county. Nobody really knows where it came from. And so they're left to just assume this is all about um, the next election and winning the next election um, and getting more Republicans on those boards. Uh, it's a good question, too, because uh, Democrats flipped the county commission in Gwinnett. And this is, you know, we don't need to tell our, our listeners this, but Gwinnett is the cornerstone of the Democratic coalition at this point, right? It used to be a Republican stronghold. Now it's solidly blue. It's the second most populous county in Georgia with a million people. It's a, one of the most diverse the, the, the most diverse big county in Georgia. And Democrats flipped the county commission for the first time in, in, in nearly three decades this past um, election cycle, um, won a, a number of countywide offices, um, took control of the, of the local school board, and this is a direct result. This, this GOP effort to, to redraw those commission lines is a direct result of, of the, those elections because you, did, you weren't hearing uh, a concerted push from Republicans to redraw these lines. Um, there might be a valid case to do so, right? Um, uh, you, know, the, you hear from the GOP supporters of this saying that some of these commission districts are almost the size of congressional districts. So that, that all said, um, Republican and Democratic county officials had not heard a single word about this before it was kind of dropped on lawmakers' laps just a few days ago. And there are some really sore feelings out there that um, uh, county officials feel like they're being betrayed. They know Republicans have the votes to push this through, but we're in a redistricting special session, um, not a general session. This came up out of the blue. And, you know, I, I remember when Governor Kemp signed the proclamation for the special session saying, um, of course, it was for redistricting, but he also said something about local local rules. I thought it meant Buckhead. <laughs> I was certain that, that they would try to push through a Buckhead city referendum. Um, but it turns out it was probably written with this Gwinnett County push in, in line, in mind, I should say. And to me, it seems pretty clear that this is all being redrawn to, to, to nullify those Democratic gains. Yeah, exactly. And we really were um, thinking that Buckhead was going to be the big headline grabber in this special session. And now it kind of makes you feel like somebody knew something we didn't know. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm kind of like, oh, How hey, they? wait a minute. And um, yeah, there there's definitely a case to be made for these changes. Um, and it's been discussed in the past. But I think it's really the timing and the lack of information sharing and heads up that has really just set off all kinds of alarm bells. If it's such a great idea, why is this not just being debated in a simple legislative session? Um, and like, where's the fire? And uh, that uh, Clint Dixon actually actually got that question. Like, you're calling this emergency legislation. What's the emergency? And he is trying to get this through so that the first uh, nonpartisan election for the school board would be in May. And so for any school board member who thought they were up for re-election in November uh, and had, would have a partisan primary before, this means, no, actually, you're going to have to run in five months in a nonpartisan election um, in, a different, the, in a district that probably looks really different from the district that you live in right now and that you represent right now. Um, so that just presents a just a huge um just a, it's just a shock to the people in Gwinnett County. They're like, what are you talking about? Um, it's really, I think, the timing mm -hmm. and the lack of information sharing uh, that's put this uh, effort under a cloud of suspicion. And, and just to be clear, with those nonpartisan um, uh, uh, May elections, 
uh, they tend to support, they tend to draw out a much lower turnout, a much whiter, much less diverse, and much older electorate, which tends to favor the Republican slash conservative candidates on the ballot. Um, and the reasoning for the, for the school change that we keep hearing from Republicans is they want to take uh, partisan politics out of it, and there's this recitation of the, the falsehood that critical race theory is being taught in schools when there's no evidence that this gradual, graduate level course is being taught not just in Gwinnett, but any, so any K through 12 system in the state of Georgia. It's just become this buzzword for, for teaching students about racism. Yeah, and also, um, you know, the Gwinnett County school system, a lot like the Cobb County school system, and, and frankly, um, hundreds of others across the country, um, they've really been getting pounded about mask mandates, about vaccines in schools, and the politicization really is coming from the right. So it's uh, Republican activists, um, super conservative Trump supporters uh, coming in and disrupting these school board meetings. And so the politicization is really not coming from the Democrats, it's coming from those far right um, Trump <clears throat> Trump supporters, Trump Republicans, and people um, demonstrating against mask mandates. So to take the politics out of the school board would really require a different group of people taking politics out of the school board, including the Republicans moving to make it nonpartisan. So it's it's just an incredibly um, unexpected uh, situation, although maybe we really should have expected it um, looking back. Yeah, I know. It's a hindsight. Because <laughs> again, I was sure it was Buckhead. I was sure. <laughs> um, well, well, finally, um, let's close the show on, on this topic. I know it's near and dear to you, but but um, after the death of, of former Senator Max Cleland, we, we found this clip from WNYC Radio that might be the best way to capture Cleland's life in, in one minute. It is possible to get strong at the broken places. Um, that was the title of my first book, mm -hmm. <laughs> 1980, uh, in which I overcame uh, the massive physical wounds of losing uh, my both my legs and my right arm. Um, I was 6'2", 215 when I went to Vietnam, a young army paratrooper, and uh, came home literally uh, without 40% of my body. And I was right-handed too, So, uh, and I lost that. So, uh, But I got quickly into, into politics, politics in Georgia and then American politics ultimately. And that became the way I coped. But when I lost that in 2002, uh, particularly when the Bush White House and, 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 and Karl Rove's uh, mind went after me uh, by turning the tables in, in American politics, and instead of putting your best foot forward, you tried to drive up your opposition's uh, negatives, and you went after even their military service and tried to capture uh, the uh, role of patriot for yourself, even when the guy uh, that I was running against had never served. Then, um, uh, after I lost, I said, what the hell? And uh, so I went down in every way you can go down, physically, mentally, and emotionally, and finally wound up back at Walter Reed in a PTSD unit. Um, and, on the, uh, and I'm sitting there crying and telling, spilling my guts and my story to my trauma counselor. And on the other side of the wall are veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq uh, sharing their story as well. And I'm saying, oh, my God. Powerful. And, you know, his, Patricia... Senator Cleland's book, which he, which, he, which he invoked there, Strong at the Broken Places, that kind of sums it all up. You wrote, you wrote such a powerful column about your, 
your friendship with with Max Cleland over the years as well. Oh, thank you so much. Um, well, you know, Senator Cleland and I, I worked for him for five years when he was in the Senate, um, but we remained um, really close. And when I moved back to Atlanta nine years ago, um, I uh, started to see a lot of him. I would go visit him um, in his apartment. And he, to me, and I told him this, and I'm so grateful I could tell him this um, before he died. Um, it was never about... Um, what happened to him when I saw him, it was about all that he had survived. You know, Mm -hmm. to me, um, he had just had everything wrong, the worst things that could happen to a person, um, to lose so much in service to his country, um, and to give so much back to other people. He was so inspiring to people. The minute he left his front door, people would come up to him and just pour their hearts out to him and say, oh, I had this thing happen to me, or Max, I was in Vietnam too, or Max, my mom just died. You know, they would see him and know that they had um, sort of a wounded healer in front of him, that he would give them comfort, and he always did. Um, And so he just gave so much back to this world that took so much from him. Um, And I told him that before he died. I'm like, I'm just so grateful for everything that you've done, like not just for me. He gave me every opportunity professionally that um, has really let me have um, the the role that I have today. Um, but also he's given so much back to other people. And I said, you know, it, he to me, he was never a victim of that horrible race in 2002, he, but he survived it, you know. He survived that just like he had survived everything else. Very few people know this. He was actually diagnosed with liver cancer. Um, he survived that as well. He had multiple heart conditions. Um, and when he, was injured in Vietnam, uh, the doctor told his best friend, who was also over there with him, said, you know, he's going to have a really hard time in life. Um, He probably will be um, too tired for the rest of the day once he gets himself dressed, and he probably won't live past 30. You know, the vascular damage was just so severe. Um, But he survived that in a way that even his own doctors didn't expect. And so I'm just grateful to have known him and to have watched his example. And Patricia, I know that, you know, we, we heard from presidents and politicians and mayors and governors and all sorts of big, powerful figures. But I think what was so touching about, about the, you know, about the, the aftermath of his, of his passing was the stories from people like you who really knew him um, or people who, who might have had one interaction with him that stayed with them for decades. You know, the story of the, of the elementary school student who's now in their 40s who remembers um, uh, uh, Senator Cleland coming and playing basketball and shooting hoops um, at the school long after his speech ended, or you know the the former staffer who remembers him jailing, bailing him out of jail, um, Matt Cleland coming and staying overnight at at, at, a, at, a, at a jail to, to help a, a friend who is who is arrested on a minor traffic violation. All those stories um, really resonated about what what, what sort of uh, personal touch he had. Yeah, and he, um, you know, he never married and never had children of his own, but I've never known anybody who had the kind of impact that he did on other people. And so he's just one of those people who, um, even with everything that happened to them, he just, he has literally left this world a better place. Um, And so I'm just very grateful for that. And I'm just one of, I mean, thousands, literally thousands of people who feel the same way. Well, rest in peace, Max Cleland. 
That's about all the time we have for today's show, but we have a lot more online and in the print edition of the AJC. Every morning, Patricia Murphy wakes up at, what, like 4 a.m. in the morning to work on the jolt, and me and Tia Mitchell <laughs> work on it late at night so we can get you guys a, a, a readable digest of what's going on in Georgia politics and what to expect in the coming days and weeks and even years sometimes. Um, we have a big debate on Tuesday. The AJC is partnering with the Atlanta Press Club and Georgia Public Broadcasting for the first high-profile debate in Atlanta mayoral runoff. The AJC's J.D. Capilouto, who you can hear as a guest on this show many, many times, he'll be on the panel with Thomas Wheatley of Axios Atlanta, and the moderator is Donna Lowry of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You'll learn where Andre Dickens and Felicia Moore stand on crime, affordable housing, and Buckhead Cityhood before the November 30th runoff. It's called the Loudermilk Young Debate Series, Tuesday at 7. Watch it on AJC.com, GPPTV, and the Atlanta Press Club's Facebook page. And folks, remember... Rate, review, and follow our podcast. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Politically Georgia. Thank you all for listening. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.